I don't know that I've met a person yet that would say that they don't like bread. Bread is, is like a staple, right? I mean, it's just, it's just what we enjoy. If, maybe you don't like the taste of it. You certainly love the smell of it. It's, it's just absolutely beautiful. And, and, and bread is a basic food um, for all people, but in particular for the poorest people. Just think about this. Um, think of countries that are related to this, tortillas. I mean, you try to go to Mexico and not run into a tortilla, right? I mean, it's just it's not going to happen. They're everywhere, all right? Um, naan. Anyone here like naan? Now, see, you need to go a little step further and, and, and enjoy papadoms and, and chapates and that kind of stuff, right? But it's all part of that same bread kind of, kind of genre of food. Um, flatbread or pita, yeah? Back in the 80s, it was like pita was it. You ate pita, that would solve all your problems, right? Um, you know, but bread is a staple. So it's, it's a symbol of man's basic need in satisfying his hunger. Um, but it's also a, a metaphor to describe um, our desires, our passions, the things that uh, make us tick. And so we need to ask ourselves this question. What is the pursuit of bread? What is it? look like? Is the pursuit, um, or what is that pursuit of bread? It is the pursuit of what uh, we think will satisfy us. Let me paint a picture here. It's the pursuit of things like a healthy, defined body, which I'm working on, um, but thinking that that is going to be ultimately that satisfies. It's going to be the answer. It's going to be the thing that, that makes whatever happen, happen, right? Um, a trendy wardrobe, just the right perfume, a new and powerful car, longing for a bigger and better home. Maybe it's that piece of jewelry you want your husband to buy you or that pair of jeans that you, you have to have in order to fit in or it's that relief from the trial that you're going through or the rest from your journey. These are all just you know, a short list of ways in which we think that something in front of us is going to be the answer. And when you find yourself getting to the place where you say, this is it, or something like, I have to have it, you are pursuing some form of bread that you think is going to provide satisfaction for your life. And oftentimes, you're like me, you've been shopping, you say, oh, i gotta go. I got to get this. And you, you, you research it, you go online, you do all the things you need to do, and you go, I'm going to go get this. And you finally get it, and you get it. And it's like, okay, it was fine, but now what, Right? The, the joy of that pursuit, the satisfaction of what you're looking for really isn't as great as what you imagined it would be. And that's so often the case um, with things that are um, our bread, so to speak, things that satisfy, at least temporarily, our desires. Now, this is also true in the area of our spirituality, in, in our, might want to say, pursuit of at least what we think is God. And it's the kind of pursuit toward maybe that secret to happiness. People may not necessarily want to come face-to-face with the God of the Bible. They certainly are pursuing some form of secret to happiness. They want to find out what they need to do in order to get whatever it is so that they can be happy. It's not surprising that, you know, in certain areas of this, this world, um, Buddhism isn't on the rise, or there's a growth in the following of Islam, or even here in California, you know, this, this attitude toward the New Age kind of thinking is, is always present. Just go north a few miles and you'll run into it, okay? Or maybe just go into the neighborhood, you'll run into it. But there, there is this thing about being spiritual, not necessarily biblical, but being spiritual. Because the idea is being spiritual in there somehow will find the secret, the answer to happiness and and being truly satisfied. Why is all of this happening? And the answer is because people are seeking bread. They're seeking satisfaction. They're looking to have their longings, their desires um, met. And this is true of all of us. And it's to that longing that Jesus comes as the bread of life. In John 6, which is our text here, is the example of and the discussion about Jesus, the bread of life, come down to satisfy man's need, his true need. So when Jesus is described as the bread of life, it is describing him as the true, ultimate, everlasting answer 
that provides satisfaction. He is the ultimate satisfier. Now, um, as we look at John 6, uh, we need to just kind of take a, a moment to remind ourselves of the structure of what's going on. A couple of weeks ago, we studied the first 15 verses, and that really showed us um, this, this miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Absolutely incredible story, powerful story. Jesus on display for everyone to see. The, the, remember the five loaves and the, and the two fish and how he used those and, and fed all those people. And it wasn't just 5,000, probably anywhere between fifteen to 20,000 people ultimately. And there was still stuff left over. And then at verses 16 through 21, we see really what seemed to be kind of a strange scenario that was Jesus interacting with the disciples on the lake because there was a storm. And we, we looked at that last week and how that fit into what was going on. Jesus was in the process of teaching his disciples and I think uh, keeping them away and making sure that they're, they're not caught up with the frenzy of the crowd and they have a better understanding of what he is trying to accomplish in this ministry, and we found that in verses 16 through 21. And now from verse 22 through 71, the rest of this chapter, we have Jesus jumping into a long discourse. The other Gospels don't have this. John, however, takes time to give us this discourse that Jesus gives about the bread of life. Okay, So it's a very, very be beneficial passage of Scripture, and basically the structure uh, falls into three sections. There's the crowd, um, there's the religious leaders, and then there's the disciples. And we're going to take the crowd today. Next week, we'll take the religious leaders. Then we'll take, ultimately, the disciples. And you say, wow, why can't we just do it all at one time? Because, honestly, there's three different themes going on in each of those sections. And we want to make sure we do justice to the theme that is before us. And we have plenty of stuff to work with um, here for our purposes this morning. And, and so our text, I want to I turn our attention to our particular text this morning, and uh, I want to tell you where we're going and how we're going to go about it. First of all, we'll be following um, the unfolding structure of our text, and we'll allow that to be our structure. And let me give you, I want to say, the, the, the key words that go on your, your main points here, that, that'll help you. All right? We're going to see, ultimately, the crowds seeking. Then they're going to be questioning. And then they're going to be requesting. This is, this is part of the structure of how John is laying out the text and the story, and we see it. They're seeking Jesus, they're questioning Jesus, and ultimately they're making a request of him. So that's going to be our structure. And you say, well, okay, you know, that's not really powerful. They're seeking, they're, they're, they're asking, they're requesting. But it is the structure of what's going on in the text. So the second thing I want you to understand is this. As we do that, as we go through that structure, I want you to be paying special attention to how Jesus gradually establishes and reveals himself as the bread of life. So we're allowing the structure to be there because that's the structure of the story and the discourse, but Jesus in that discourse is slowly revealing himself. He's giving us indicators, and it's really an evolution, so to speak, of revelation about who he is, and it's really a beautiful picture. And the third thing I want us to notice as we go through this passage is this. Uh, that I, I want you to take notice of the many ways that these, uh, these people crowd out the bread of life. And this is kind of another theme along here, how they are, they, their, their minds, their thinking, their attitudes, their behaviors are all ways in which they're crowding out the fact of who Jesus really is and what he's revealing about himself to them. And we want to see that because we don't want to be making that same mistake. And we want to understand who the bread of life truly is. And so this morning... Um, join me as we, as we do that. W would you just pause a moment with me and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, um, Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? And Lord, um, would you allow your, your word, would you allow your Holy Spirit to have freedom to work through me, your messenger? Lord, shape us, conform us, uh, challenge us, Allow us, Lord, to be humble before you. And, Lord, although this seems like a, an encounter and a discourse that took place so long ago that may not seem like it would have application and relevance to us, Lord, allow us to see that it does and allow your Holy Spirit to truly have freedom to, to convict and challenge and to encourage and strengthen us, Lord, as you see fit. And just use me as a mouthpiece today, Lord, I ask in your, in your son's precious holy name. Amen. So, Let's jump in now at the crowd seeking their hero. And I'm calling him 
their hero king for a reason. We'll get there, but if you remember, um, at the end of chapter 6, verse, I think it was verse, verse 15, they wanted, to, they wanted to take him by force and make him king, right? They wanted him to be this hero, so to speak, that would be the, the answer and the solution to their problems, although they had their own mindset of what that would look like. Now, this passage is screaming at us to ask some penetrating questions. And here's the first questions. Do we have a distorted view of Christ? Let's look at um, beginning at verse 22. On the next day, the crowd remained on the other side of the sea. Uh, they saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that the disciples had gone away alone. Now, the question here is this. We have a distorted view of Christ. How many of you have seen the movie Aladdin? Okay, you can be honest, it's okay. Whether you have kids or not, it's all right. No one's going to think anything less of you, all right? Um, it's, it's a classic story, of course. Disney's done it. But the, the key in that story is the story of Aladdin and his lamp. And, of course, what does Aladdin do? He gets the lamp, and pretty much whoever has the lamp, they rub the lamp, and poof, out comes a genie, and you get three wishes. Now, I wonder if we would be willing to honestly ask, is this how we view Christ? Is this how we view our relationship with Christ? When we receive him, uh, we treat him like he is an Aladdin's lamp that we rub in just the right way at just the right moment uh, so we will not only get three wishes, but we'll have a full supply everlasting. It's almost as if Jesus is our rabbit's foot that goes with us everywhere we go. He is our lucky charm, so to speak. He's the one at that moment will answer the call that we have to come and help and to be there. And so we, we face a trial, and it's like rub, 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 okay? Um, and you say, well, well, no, that's not how I view Jesus. But let's continue to think through this a little bit. What would it be like to wake up tomorrow morning and find that you don't have Jesus anymore? That you have no Aladdin's lamp to rub when you need him. In fact, you have nothing. You have entered into a stormy place and everything is gone. Your bank account's gone. Your house is gone. Your car. All you have are the clothes on your back. No family, no friends, no job, no church, no Jesus. All that you put your hopes in has now fizzled away in one night's sleep. You're all alone. You don't have your lamp to rub, and he's gone. What would that be like? Maybe another way to ask the question is this. Why is it that you are following Christ? Why is it that you come to church? Why is it that you consider yourself to be a Christian? Is it because you're secretly hoping that in following Jesus, some of these things will happen? He will somehow take care of all your needs. Rub, rub, rub. He will somehow make sure that your bills are paid on time. Rub, rub, rub. He will be sure to watch over your family and keep them safe. You know, yeah, keep rubbing, keep rubbing. Maybe my kids, you know, they're out in the car and they're driving and they're out and it's a Friday night. I'm just going to rub, 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 rub. And the more I rub, the more I'm sure that they're going to be safe. Or maybe you, you, you kind of think that, that he will provide blessings for you because you are being obedient to the standards and expectations he has for his church and just constantly rubbing. In other words... You're following Jesus because of what you think he gives you rather than who he is. Let me state it a little differently. Are you following Jesus because of what he, you think he gives you or because of who he is? It's a huge question, and it has rippling effects on how we live our lives for his glory, how we worship him. If you view Jesus as a resource that is simply a resource to give you things, to help you, to provide for you, to meet certain needs, you may be missing the whole picture of what he's really come to do. Now, I think we here in America, in American Christianity in particular, have been guilty of overstating the case with regard to what he gives and what he promises. I've heard people say the following, and I, you can give me a yes or no at the end of this. If you follow Jesus, all your problems will be over. Is that true? 
The answer is yes, and the answer is no, which being interpreted is yo, okay? So the answer is yo, because it all depends on what you're talking about. I mean, if you follow Jesus, all your problems will be over. Well, what problems are you talking about? There's a huge problem that Jesus claimed to accomplish, and if you've embraced him as your Lord and Savior, that problem is over. Here's another one. If you embrace Christ, you will be blessed beyond measure. Is that true? Is that false, or is that a yo? Yo. See, making you more contemporary. All right, just, all right we went to church and we yoed. And it wasn't even Christmas. That would be, that'd be a ho-ho. All right, anyway. If you come to Jesus, he promises to provide for your needs. Is that true? Yes and no. It all depends on what you interpret that to be. I mean, you can say, oh, I'm going to come to Jesus, but I got this debt of $10,000 on my car and I can't pay it. And I'm coming to Jesus now, boom, do something. Is that what we mean by that? But you know what? I think American Christianity has presented Christ in that way. If you just... You just come to Jesus, and Jesus will be the one who provides all of your needs. Hmm. See, we've, we've, we've kind of overstated it. It is true, but in what way is it true? And it's false, but in what way is it false? And we've got to be careful then if we're, we're not being clear, we're not clearly understanding Scripture or teaching Scripture properly, that we have a distorted view of who Christ is. He is not someone that we come and just rub and he's supposed to do what we, what we want him to do because he promises that he'll take care of our needs. He may want you to have a debt of $10,000. He may want you to struggle with that. And some of you are saying, I know what you're talking about. All right? Now, he came down from heaven not to solve all of our problems. Get this, our hunger, our disease, our money, our relationships, but to solve the problem of our sin. He didn't come primarily to feed us, to keep us healthy and to pay our bills. Although many times he does provide for us in that way. He comes primarily to give us spiritual life, spiritual food, and spiritual resources. And with those spiritual resources, he gives us counsel, wisdom, strength to live our lives for his glory through thick and through thin, with his help. Because he knows that this is simply a temporary place. There is a place prepared for us yet, and that is in heaven. And those blessings, those joys, those meeting of needs, what we call our ultimate salvation, will be accomplished when we step from this world into the glory of heaven. But when we transfer it over into this world, and we say, ah, if I just pray enough, and I just rub enough, and I just do all the things right enough, then God will do this, as if he is there to do my bidding. So if you woke up, and he was gone, would you go seeking for Jesus? And if you did, why would you seek him? To put more food in your tummy? To have him give back all the things that he took away from you? I mean, he did it with Job, so he should do it with you, right? I wonder, in our American Christian culture, whether Jesus is really much more of a security blanket to provide for our daily needs, a crutch to get us through life, a lamp to rub when we want our needs met. You know, you hear other people, non-Christians, making that accusation. Maybe it's because that's what they've observed. Is it true? Or is there more to your walk with him? Is he truly more than enough, like we sang this morning? And we must get the impact of what's going on here. The day before, Jesus had filled the bellies of between 15 and 20,000 people in a miraculous display of his power. We're told in that passage that they had eaten so much that they couldn't eat anymore. They had their fill. And not only that, there were leftovers, 12 baskets full. And now each of the disciples 
Which say each of these people that were part of the crowd wakes up the next day from their groggy sleep of having eaten so much. You know what I'm talking about. When you've just stuffed yourself full and you've slept through the night and you get up the next day, and what are they doing? They're looking, not for the disciples, they're looking for Jesus. And why do you think they're looking for Jesus? Because they're thinking, we want to eat again. Perform the same miracle again. And they look around and guess what? Their hero king, the one who is going to provide their satisfaction, this religious leader that they had, had desired to, to thrust into kingship and to overthrow the Romans, he is now gone. Now, they attempted to take Jesus by force, if you remember. They attempted to force him into their mold of what they thought the king of the Jews and what the Messiah should be. And sadly, that happens far too often today too, doesn't it? People will take Jesus and make him a poster boy for whatever they want him to be rather than who he truly is. So we're told in verse 23, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread and after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So you can, you can almost smell the panic in the air. You can sense the, the lost opportunity and, and discouragement that they're experiencing. Their dreams had been dashed. Their religious, political, miracle hero was gone. They had to find Jesus. He was their ticket to satisfy their bellies, to overthrow the tyrants, to heal their diseases, to be their self-made Messiah, and Aladdin's lamp of eternal proportions. But he's gone. It's quite a sight. 15 to 20,000 people jumping on boats. Now, I had to kind of process all that. Just, even if it was 5,000, that's a lot of boats. Just like, like cockroaches, you know, hopping into to boats. Like Vikings storming the shore. Like zombies coming on. We've got to find Jesus. We've got to find him. We've got to find him. I mean, that's the kind of tone. That's kind of the, the attitude of what's going on here. And what happens when they do find him? This is the second part now. Questions, questions, questions. The crowd is questioning their hero, King. They're questioning his hero, King. And there are three questions, ultimately, that they're asking. And uh, the first one is found in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, the, the sense of it doesn't quite come out as strongly in the English language. Maybe the way we can better express what was going on is, is found in this question. Rabbi, what do you think you're doing? Leaving us all alone with empty stomachs? Leaving us when you need to start marching to Jerusalem? Their appetites were driving their agitation at Jesus' behavior. They're hungry. You know what it's like when you're hungry? Anyone here ever get cranky because you're hungry? It's not an excuse, but it happens, right? Just note that, all right? You can't use that argument today, all right? Give everyone kind of carte blanche. But you, just because you're, you're hungry doesn't mean that you are free to get agitated, but it's understandable that you are. This is what's going on here. And not only they're hungry, but they've gone on this journey. They've sought him out. They're trying to find him. They still have a dream that they want to satisfy. And they want Jesus to be the one who brings that satisfaction. So earlier in the day, they had no boat, they had no food, they had no supplier. Now they found a boat, and they found their supplier, and they want to be fed. So what kind of a hero king are you, they're thinking? What do you think you are doing? Now, have you ever, ever come across that kind of thinking? Have you ever come close yourself personally to that kind of thinking? You've, you've arrived at a stormy place in your life, and you're saying to God, what do you think you're doing? Why have you abandoned us or me? What about my needs? This is not what you promised. You ever thought those things or said those things? Again, we see the theme of this text. They desire Jesus a Jesus of their own making. And we, we see that kind of thing all, all over 
the world, both inside and outside the church. Radicals want a radical Jesus. Conservatives want a conservative Jesus. All right? Republican right to life people want a con- Republican right to life Jesus. Democrats want a Democrat Jesus. Right? Um, those who believe in the power of positive thinking want a Jesus who is positive. I mean, they just force Jesus into our mold. Force him to be what we want him to be. And the list goes on, and the list goes on. But Jesus answers their confrontational question. Here's what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're not seeking me because you understood the signs. That was well, the signs that were pointed to me as the source of life, the savior of the world, and the satisfier for all mankind. You simply want your bellies filled. In other words, it's not just about their tummies and having more food. It's also about their desires. It's about what they were wanting to do. And we, we clearly see that from that, that whole attitude that they wanted to set him up as king. They had an agenda. They had a plan. And signs are there to help point us to a destination, right? Now, have you ever... Have you ever missed a sign or missed a turn and so you got off on, you know, you didn't get off on the exit you're supposed to get off at and you're driving by and, you know, it's pretty annoying, right? But listen, you missed the sign that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is the one that has, came, that has come to give satisfaction to the world. You will have eternal devastation, not simply temporary agitation. The sign is here for a reason. Throughout the Gospel of John, we have these signs that are there to show us who he is. So these signs are there to convince them that Jesus is in control and that he um, is the one to be worshipped. But it, it only simply whets their appetites for greed and for their desire for selfishness. Now just think about this. If Jesus truly was concerned about bread, he would have set up a restaurant. Right? You know, we're just going to, we're going to have a feeding station here. We're just going to provide food. Just going to meet man's needs like that. If he was concerned about healing, he would have set up what? A hospital. A place where people could come. And they go, hey, this is Jesus's healing center. Come here. You can have constant healing. All you have to do is come. Now, you understand that Jesus went into villages and towns, and he did heal. He didn't heal everyone, but he did heal. He didn't ultimately come for the purpose of physical healing. He didn't come ultimately for the purpose of meeting the needs of the poor and the hungry, although he did some of that in in his ministry. It's a demonstration of his compassion. He used that ultimately to bring glory to himself. But that wasn't the primary reason why he came. He is primarily concerned about convincing people that he is the king of kings, the savior of the world, and has the gift of eternal life. And notice what he says now in verse 27. Do not work for the food that what? Perishes. But for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So Jesus is saying that our pursuit for what the world offers won't satisfy. It will only be temporary. It might, it might feel good for a season, but it will be temporary, and you'll wake up the next morning, and your belly will be empty. Your, your desires will rise up again and want satisfaction again. Now, friends, we all know that to be true. Because we have all pursued things that when we bite into it just wasn't quite as nice and as good as we thought it was going to be. And we're left empty. And that is the reality of what this world has to offer. So, so here we want to see the sign and understand that the food that endures to eternal life is really what matters. And the Son of Man is the one who will give it to you, he says. He has the seal or the approval of God the Father. Now, what, he, what Jesus is saying here for the crowd that he is speaking to is hugely significant. He's not just kind of saying, oh, I think I'll choose this idea of son of man and talk about seal and bring that in here and kind of makes a nice story. No, this is theologically purposeful. And we're going to, we'll flesh it out in a little bit, but just understand these words are here for, for a purpose. The second question is this. 
It's found in verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, you go to Staples, they have these little red things that you can buy on the counter. Anyone know what it is? It's an easy button, right? It's an easy button. The, the question here is this, what must we do? Now listen, in other words, if we're not to work for the food that perishes, what does working for the food that endures to eternal life look like? Show us the formula that we need to follow. Tell us the button we need to press. Give us the hoops that we need to jump through. Now, friends, this is what religion ultimately looks like. What do I need to do in order to appease my idea of who God is so that somehow by me proving by my actions that I am worthy enough to be accepted by him? And it comes in a variety of forms. It involves things like pilgrimages to holy places, prayers offered out of obligation, fasting, serving, giving, meditation, all experience, but as a demonstration of commitment. And here's, here's where this, this fine line of walking with God with the spiritual disciplines and doing the, dis- the spiritual disciplines in such a way that it is legalistic and religious takes place. Because you know, you can fast, you can read your Bible, you can attend church, you can do lots of different things. But if you're doing it because you're saying, God, see, I'm fasting. Look at me. Over here, God, I read my Bible today. All right? Boom. Look at me, God, I'm serving you. All right? What is that? That's religion. You're trying to prove to God your worth by what you are doing. Now, all these spiritual disciplines are there as means by which God, by his grace, through his spirit, strengthens us, molds us, shapes us according to what he desires to do in conforming us to his son. So we fast with the purpose of saying, God, you know my heart, but I'm going to trust you. I'm not looking to impress you. I'm looking to be faithful to you through this discipline. I'm going to read my Bible because I want to make progress in my Bible, and I know that as I make progress through my Bible, you are going to be feeding me through the word that I am studying. He says, a fine line there, isn't there? What do you want us to do is the question. So the point that Jesus makes is so important for us to embrace. Notice verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, friends, the simplicity of what Jesus is saying here blows away the religious people. Believe. Wait, no. I have to do something. No. You have to believe. Now, the goal of John's gospel, as we have seen, if you aren't familiar with it or you don't remember it, John 20, 30, and 31, talks about the fact that John is giving evidence, just countless records and details of evidence that Jesus Christ is in fact um, the Christ and he is the son of God and by looking at that evidence you will do what? You will believe but that's not the end of the story that in believing you will have life. Aha! That life then is a picture of satisfaction. That life is a picture of having all the things that God desires for me to have and has promised me to have. So when we're talking here about belief, it's not simply affirming, yes, those, that data proves or, or shows that Jesus is Christ. It is saying that data shows that this is Christ, and I am going to believe what he has to say and appropriate it to myself. So when John uses the expression believe, um, he's talking really about this the full acknowledgement of sin before God, my sin before God, that Jesus is the Messiah sent to pay for our sins through his death on the cross, that our total and complete resting on his accomplishment uh, as our substitute, as the means of our salvation and satisfaction. So it's just applying all the things that we would say are the gospel, is that belief, okay? It's not just giving mental assent to something. It's truly embracing it, resting on it, trusting in it, completely. And friends, listen, there is no secret formula to get to God. There is no 
easy button that we must press or experience that somehow puts us on a higher plane. Listen, friends, you're not going to get zapped by God and somehow, boosh, you're popped up to a, another level in your walk with him. It doesn't work that way. Scripture doesn't reveal things that way. It is a steady, day-by-day walk with God, the Holy Spirit actively working through his word and all the other dynamics that make the body of Christ and the fellowship of believers. All those things are part of the growth process that God gives us day-by-day. Grace heaped upon grace, steady grace, moving into grace, more grace, just growing in your walk toward Christ-likeness. If you're looking for an easy solution, it's not going to happen. And what happens is people will go to churches where that that zap is promoted and pushed. And so they'll go, they'll have an experience, and here's what happens is that you end up wanting experience after experience after experience after experience, and you find out that those experiences only satisfy for a season, and then you kind of get this down, and it's like, oh, I've got to go find another experience, and you become very experience-oriented. And that is not how God desires for you to live your life. Now, there are seasons when you're going to be experiential. I just had one a couple of weeks ago. I went to a conference for like three days. And it wasn't experiential in the sense of, oh, you know, just like floating on the air. You know, yeah. I mean, it wasn't like that at all. But it was, it was an experience because we're engaging with the Word of God, and the Word of God has been preached and put, you know, put to bear on my heart, and, and I was doing business with God, and it was good, it was helpful, but it's not like, oh, I've got to find another one. The next one's going to be the real answer. No, it's part of God's process to grow us. So, friends, it's important that we understand that Jesus doesn't call us to do all these things that natural, I want to say, religion apart from God is saying that we need to do. God is not impressed with us at all. He's not impressed with our work. He's not impressed with our doing. Now, here's the the next question. Verse 30, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now, can you just see the bondage of their blindness? The audacity to say to Jesus... What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Um, Hello, where were you a day ago when 20,000 people were fed by a few loaves and a couple of fish? Wasn't that a pretty powerful demonstration of who Jesus is? And now you're saying, hey, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Oh, what about the healings that took place before he fed all the people? What about those signs? Now, seeing oftentimes in the gospel is not always believing. Ultimately, Scripture will tell us that believing is seeing, because you can have all the facts before you, but you have to believe until you, you kind of you know, recognize what's all there. But just float with me as we go through a few passages here in, in the gospel of John. John 1.14. John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, there's that word seen. That's important here. 1 John 1.1. Again, John bringing in this same kind of scenario. That which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, we've looked upon and we've touched. This is all evidence, right? It's all evidence that's helped us understand this. there's something more to this. This is evidence that shows who Jesus is. John 20, verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. Mary Magdalene, verse 18, went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So seeing was believing. They saw the facts of the resurrection. The problem here in this text is this. The problem with the crowd wasn't with the evidence, but with themselves, who are not looking at the evidence, which was in abundance for them to see. And part of the reason they can't see that is because it's being crowded out. Now, how many signs or miracles does Jesus have to perform to demonstrate who he is. On one level, this really isn't a request for a sign, but for some new kind of experience. You know, yesterday was one thing. Well, show us today now what you can do. 
But when does that stop? What's going to happen the next day and the next day and the next day? He's just going to be a, you know, a miracle performer that's just going to dance for you every day and do what you want him to do? Again, this is the nature of religion, always looking for the next experience and missing the point that the greatest miracle already took place on the cross. My friends, hear that. The greatest miracle, the greatest event, the greatest circumstance that God could have done and has done is what he accomplished in his son on the cross that was sealed by him by virtue of his resurrection. That is the greatest miracle, and that's why we take time. We'll do it next Sunday to remember what Jesus accomplished on the cross, to celebrate the Lord's table because it is the ultimate miracle, the ultimate sign, the ultimate demonstration by God about His Son communicating to us the great gospel and the salvation that we have in Him if we have truly put our faith and trust in Him. So He wants us to dwell on that, to feast on it, to be satisfied with that same gospel. But see, religion wants something new, something fresh, not something old, not something has been. But they continue, verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So there is something more that they are looking for here. It comes out with this statement. And this kind of connects us back to something that Jesus has already said, because there, there, there is a sense in which they're tracking with him on one certain level. They recognize that what the Son of Man, who is an expression, if you remember, from the end of chapter 1, describing Jesus in this role as mediator between man and God, between earth and heaven. The Son of Man functions in that role. And so he promises, as the Son of Man, going back a few verses, he promises that he will bring food, he'll bring bread that, ne- that doesn't perish. But he says, what I have to, to offer will never perish. It will have everlasting effects. So, ah, they're saying, okay, well, Moses then was the one who provided the food for us, and if he provided the food for us, that food perished, right? Remember, remember the story in the Old Testament? God brought manna. How soon did they have to eat it? That very day, if they didn't eat it that day, boom, it would perish. It, would, it wouldn't be worth anything, right? But the Son of Man comes, and he comes with a bread that endures for eternity. Aha, then show us that bread. Perform a miracle for us. Show us that bread that is different than Moses. Now, they're not thinking spiritual. They're not thinking in the spiritual realm yet. They're still thinking in the physical realm. In other words, your food is a step up from Moses. His perished. Yours doesn't. What does that look like? We want some of that. That means that you can give it to us and we can take it with us and eat it day after day after day. Now, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, we've had that expression a couple of times in this passage. and Let me just note here, Anytime you see that expression in the Gospels, it means, listen up, what I'm about to tell you is really important. So you had better be paying attention. Okay? Truly, truly, I say to you. You have a King James, verily, verily. All right? This is important. Now notice what he says. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. What does that tell you that Jesus is communicating to them? Your eyes and your focus is on the wrong place. Moses isn't the one who gave you this food. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They believe that Moses was the one who was doing the given, but Jesus clarifies that. Verse 24 of Psalm 78 says this, and the Father, I'm putting that, that's who it's talking about, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them grain of heaven. It's the Father that provided the manna. It's God, you might say, that provided and provided and provided and provided. Moses was the mediator. Moses, you might want to say back then, was a type of Christ in the sense that he did represent the people 
for, uh, before God. But he's not the one that provided the manna. It was the Father that provided the manna. But now we have the Son of Man coming. And he is going to provide bread that endures. Now here's, here's, the, you know, here's one principle we can flush out of this. They made the mistake of thinking that the gift was more important than the giver. I think about that. When we are hungry, when we are longing, when we are needy, and, and these things are all part of our own thinking, we're saying, I've got to have, I've got to have, I've got to have, and it's provided for us, we rejoice over the provision. And the problem is that it's not the provision we should be rejoicing over, it should be the provider. God had provided them manna in the wilderness for how long? 40 years. It's a long time. It wasn't Moses, it was God. Now, in the same sense, this heaven, this, this, this bread is coming down from heaven. And Jesus is screaming at us through John's gospel that we can be guilty of the same kind of thinking, that health, blessings, provision, comfort, safety, prosperity, and happiness are all more important than the one who was our ultimate satisfaction. But friends, it is a lie. Notice that the bread of God is synonymous with the bread of heaven. And this is where we're starting to see some of the, the evolution and disclosure of who Jesus is and how he connects to an Old Testament text in the front of a crowd that are Jews that understand what he's talking about. They're even bringing up Moses. He is connecting himself and showing himself to be superior to Moses, but not only superior to Moses in that he is the mediator, but not only is he the mediator, he himself is the bread. So the bread of God is synonymous with the bread of heaven. Kind of like in Matthew's gospel, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Some people want to separate those two things, but they're really talking about the same thing. Okay? The bread of God is the transition, get this, from Jesus provides the bread of heaven to Jesus is the bread from heaven. So he's the one that provides it, and ultimately he's going to be the one who is that bread. So this brings us then to the, to the third point, um, the third structural part of this, this passage. And here we have the crowd that is requesting something from their hero king. And here's what their request is. They said to him, having listened to him, Sir, give us this bread. What? Always. You say, see, see, they got saved. There must have been a revival that took place. This, it must have been absolutely incredible. The first church here recorded in the Gospel of John. No, that's not what's going on. Even after Jesus explains um, what is going on here, and, and, and declares himself to the crowd, they are still blind to what he is really saying and what he's really revealing. The problem is that they have witnessed Jesus at work, but only their curiosity, only their, um, their appetites, only their political agendas and ambitions have been aroused, not their faith. They have crowded out the bread of life. And I just want to tease some ways in which They've crowded out the bread of life. And these are, these are ways, friends, that, that, that we can also do that. And there's just five that come to mind, all right? They're not going to be up on the screen, so you listen. First of all is this. You, you crowd out the bread of life um, by pursuing your own agenda. I mean, here is Jesus in the flesh, and he has come, and he is there ministering, and he is providing, and all they can think about is what they desire, what they want, rather than who he is and what he wants and what he is going to accomplish. And so they, they're missing out on the benefit of the bread of life because they're pursuing their own agenda. They've crowded it out with their own agenda. Secondly, you crowd out the bread of life by embracing um, your own distorted theology. Your theology is your view of God your understanding of who he is. And if you are already convinced and have in your mind a picture of who God is, and when you come to Scripture or you see things that are there and you try and force God to fit into your own idea of theology, your own idea of God, then you're crowding out the bread of life because you're not seeing him for who he really is. Now, friends, we've got to be careful. We don't take systems and ideas about who God is and come to the Bible and then say, okay, I've got to prove it, I've got to prove it. We've got to just let the Bible speak. 
And some passages are going to show God as being loving and, and compassionate and, and just full of grace. And some passages are going to show him, you know, in his anger and his wrath, accomplishing his purposes in providing the necessary punishment for man's sinfulness. And you're, you wrestle with that. But friends, that is a picture of who God is. And it's accurate because that's what the Word of God reveals. And we've got to take him as he is revealed. The third thing is there's... You crowd out the bread of life by trending toward a press-this-button religion. And listen, this can happen to, to all of us who have embraced Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we truly desire to walk with Him, but subtly through that walk, we begin to shift our focus and shift the ways in which we are satisfied with that walk by simply pressing the button or checking off the boxes or jumping through the hoops. And we're all guilty of that. Here's the, the fourth thing. We crowd out the bread of life by um, hungering for the ongoing sensational and miraculous. And friends, there's so much of the church that is pursuing the next sensational thing. Now, I'm not saying that church should be boring. I'm not saying the Christian walk should be boring or dull at all. And there are going to be times of great excitement but we crowd out the bread of life and we're just pursuing the experience. We're pursuing the, the event and all the things that go with that as opposed to this daily pursuit of, of Christ. Here's the fifth thing. They crowded out the bread of life by their blindness and unbelief. They just could not see him as he was revealing himself, even though the evidence is right there in front of them. Now, this blindness is not new to the readers of John's Gospel. What we have seen here um, is their request. And they say, Sir, give us this bread always. Let's just, let me just remind you of a couple other occasions that we've already seen as we've studied through John's Gospel where similar things have taken place. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Right? This is the woman at the well. And, and you know, he, he argues with her. I mean, paints a picture gives the case, and she still doesn't get the spiritual application. All she's thinking about is, hey, you, you found another source of water, and I don't have to walk this far? Tell me where it is. Especially if it's just like this everlasting thing. That'd be good. She's, just, just, she's on a love, on, you know, horizontal plane. All right, here's another one. Sir, you have kept the good wine until now. Now, there wasn't so much of an interaction between Christ and that, that particular, um, I want to say, overseer at, at, at that wedding, but this certainly is a demonstration of the fact that he was ignorant to what actually took place there, that Jesus turned the water into wine. There was something more significant going on there. And then, of course, there's this one. Sir, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? I mean, there's Nicodemus wrestling with, what is this you're talking about? Okay, so there certainly was this blindness to, to the spiritual dimension. Now, thankfully, Nicodemus got it. And thankfully, the woman at the well ultimately got it. But here we have this crowd, and they're just not getting it. They're not seeing what is there before them. So now we have Jesus' revelation. Um, and uh, what we have already had revealed to us about Jesus, I want to kind of, kind of put in a summary format before we actually flesh out these pas this passage of Scripture, okay? First of all, the miracle of the loaves and fishes is a sign that points to Christ, right? It's a sign that points to Christ as the Son of Man. And it just, it just happens, a lot of these things, they, they begin with the letter S. I didn't plan that, it just happened to be here um, and, you know, the English language played it out that way, okay? So there's the sign that points to him as the Son of Man. The Son of Man, we're told, has the seal of the Father. All right? Now, you're laughing, but this is, this is what is there, right? And that seal of the Father comes, or that, that belief comes um, because the Father sent this Son of Man to this earth and his showing signs and ultimately his seal is on him. So you have these, these, 
these four words working together. There's been a heavenly sign, a sun, a seal, and ascending. Now, we see Jesus also being described as the true bread from heaven. We see him described then further as the bread of God as he explains that it's God that actually gave the bread. But then he moves from that to say, now I am the bread of life. So he's saying, yes, there was bread from heaven. That's, that's what I am providing. But there's also this bread of God. And this bread of God is not stuff that floats from heaven. This bread of God actually is a person and this bread of God actually is the person who is me, and I am the bread of life. So he, there's, this, there's this progression in his discussion with this crowd of people. What you saw happen with Moses, you heard about your, your fathers in the wilderness, that was a foreshadowing of the fact that I am coming as the one who ultimately will satisfy you totally, completely. So, we have four beautiful pictures of himself as the bread of life. Here's the first one. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. When you come and believe, you will never again hunger or thirst spiritually because it is Jesus that completely satisfies. And that's the first thing. The, the, the crowd is requesting, but Jesus is revealing that he is the bread that satisfies completely. If you can imagine what complete satisfaction looks like and feels like and is, it is all bound up in Jesus. You will never hunger. You will never thirst again. And he's not talking about horizontal stuff. He's talking about spiritual stuff. But Jesus... Or in Jesus, you will find full, complete satisfaction. He won't fade away after a few days. He won't leave you feeling empty. He is the bread of life that satisfies completely. Secondly, he says, I am the bread that submits faithfully. We see this interplay between Jesus and the Father. And I say, oh, that's really not talking about the bread of life. Well, it's talking about the, the, the way in which this all happens. And it's actually a wonderful window into the relationship of the Godhead. Let's read it, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So the Father gives me, I have come down from heaven to do the will of him who sent me. So there's this wonderful relationship just declared for us here. Again, let's take a snapshot of the Gospel of John here. John 1, 14. And the word, of, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18 of chapter 1, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John 4.23, but the hour is coming and now is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. That's Jesus speaking. John 5.17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. And he's basically saying my father's work is ending because I am here to do that work. Verse 19, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. John 15, 23, whoever hates me hates my father also. John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. There's this, and that's, just, that's just a snapshot. There's a lot more in the gospel of John that just reveal this relationship that Jesus had with his father and also with the Holy Spirit. We didn't even get into that. It's a beautiful picture that Jesus is faithfully submitting to this, this will of the Godhead. And that moves us into the next one because it takes the same verses of Scripture. It's, he is the bread that secures fully. Notice what these verses teach about how, God, how the Godhead works and why. All the Father gives will come, and I will never cast them out. So God is, 
God is, is granting, he's giving people to his son. That's the picture here. And Jesus says, all that the Father gives me, I will not cast it out. I mean, you know, Christmas times we might, you know, we get a gift and we're like, okay, that one's a good one. I'll keep that one, right? And then you get the return pile and then there's the, I hope no one sees this, I'm tossing it over my head pile, right? I mean, it's that kind of thing. Listen, every gift the Father gives his son, he keeps, he loves, he pursues. He never, ever, ever casts that person out. He says, I will never lose any that the Father has given me. Now, why is this true? Because it is the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is the will of the Godhead. And friends, this passage is a great comfort to every child of God. You've been given to Christ by the Father. This gift began before the creation of the world. Scripture teaches us that. Whomever God gifts to Jesus, those people are secure, never to be cast out, never to be lost. And John, again in his gospel, chapter 10, if you want to turn there, John 10, verse 28 and 29, a wonderful picture of this truth. We're picking it up in the middle of another discourse, but notice chapter 10, verse 27 and following, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now those who do not want to embrace the security of the child of God will say, well, yeah, but you can jump out. It just doesn't, doesn't grab the, the, the tone of what's going on here. Look, my Father who has given them to me is what? Greater than all. Even the person who's standing in the grip of the Father and here in the grip of the Son. We are secure in Him. And when He draws us to Himself and when He breathes new life into us, we have everlasting life. It's not temporary life. It's everlasting friends, it's a great comfort to us because you and I are knuckleheads, right? I will get tempted to say, look at your neighbor and call him a knucklehead, but you can do that later. It's true, and we sin, and sometimes we sin really bad, right? Sometimes we throw the towel, sometimes we just implode, and it's ugly, and, and we start asking questions like, oh, God, how could you love me? I did X, Y, and Z. And there we go down this performance thing again. When the reality is, you are God's child. You are secure in him. He knows, he understands the frailties of our human flesh, that we will sin, that we will fail. But what he wants is for us to turn to him and say, I need your help. Help me to know what to do. I I rest on you, my sinfulness, Lord, before you. I forgive Lord, give me wisdom. Give me counsel. Friends, he understands all that. And we are totally and completely secure in him. And finally, the fourth thing that we find here is that the bread of life sustains eternally. And this is kind of like a a push screaming at us who are reading this. Remember, the gospel is written to give evidence to a people who are reading the gospel. So there's a summary statement in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, there should be like shouts of Yahoo and praise the Lord and amen going on there, right? This is, this is what's going on. This is what you and I have to look forward to. It's a promise that when you are his child... When you feasted on the bread of life, it comes with the promise of eternal life, you could say, with abundant life, and with the certainty that in that on that last day, you are going to be raised up, whatever that looks like. Now, some concluding thoughts. I've got two minutes, if that. We're left some, with some decisions, I think, some, some, some contemplations as we think through what's going on here. I'll just summarize these. Are, are you trying to fit Jesus into your own understanding of who he is? 
Or are you humbly allowing God's word to reveal to you the real Jesus? Let me say that again. Are, are you trying to fit him into your own understanding of who he is, or are you humbly allowing God's word to reveal to you the real Jesus? And that, that begs the question, are you spending time in the word? Obviously, you're here sitting under the preaching of the word, and you know, there may be other times when you're, you're sitting around the word and, and you're taking it in, but is, is the word fashioning your view of God or are other things fashioning your view of God? And that's a healthy question for us all. Secondly, are you attempting to use Jesus to be your own personal Aladdin's lamb? Uh, just take the question honestly and just say, you know, is there a way in my life that I'm doing that? I'm just, I'm just trying to rub and, and hoping that he'll come and be my hero for a day. Or are you submitting to his will in the same way that he submits to his father? Have you, here's the third thing, have you relegated your relationship with Jesus to a list of do's and don'ts or some quick fix, easy button emotionalism? I know you're not going to get all this down, but you get the sense. Or are you allowing the steady day-by-day growth in him to be your pursuit? The fourth thing, are you looking for more experiences, some more spiritual highs? Those, those are just some, some themes that just come floating out of this passage. But friends, what we're going to summarize here is, is really for us all. Number one, will you look for him? In your day-to-day activity, are you looking for Jesus? Secondly, will you believe him? Will you believe what he says to you through his word about what you're going through, about where your struggles are, about your sinful tendencies, about the ways in which you are trying to find satisfaction in other places apart from him? And then will you come to him? Will you come and rest on him? Now, that, that message there is really primarily for those who do not know him as their personal Lord and Savior. Are you looking for him? And when you find him, will you believe him? And when, when you, you believe who he is and you embrace him and you're coming to him, you know, you, you, you take the total package of the gospel. This is also true for us as believers. I want to add a word in there, and that is this. Will you continue to look for him? Will you continue to believe him? Will you continue to come to him? Because, friends, he is the bread of life. He is the ultimate person that will satisfy the longings of your soul. Lord, there's so many things for us to think through. And I ask that today as we contemplate you as the bread of life, that we would learn not only from the crowd and the way that they struggled in trying to wrestle Jesus into their own agenda, but Lord, how you have revealed that for us and how we see your son on display and that we can get a greater picture of, of, of how he connects to fulfilling even, even pictures in the Old Testament and, and allowing that to be a place where he can reveal himself and, and who he truly is. Uh, the, the bread of life from heaven come down in a person so that we can ultimately feast on him, not physically, but feast on what he has accomplished on the cross on our behalf as our substitute, as our sacrifice. Lord, you are a great God, and you are worthy of our praise. But Lord, you are also desiring for us to come and to rest completely and totally on you as our satisfier. And Lord, if there's any way that we have fallen short Would you just allow us in the time that we have right now as we sing, as we contemplate your word, Lord, that we would do business with you, that we would would confess our sins, that we would say, Lord, I, I, I am now, from this point on, going to rest completely on you, and I need your strength to do that. I need your wisdom. Lord, help us to do that for your glory, we ask in your name.